Thanks, guys. If you haven't heard this spiel before, um, High Point Church is a teaching church, which means that we give time, energy, budget, all this kind of stuff to help prepare young leaders for the church. It's partly because one of our core values is the idea that um, we're part of something bigger. And if God at any point blesses us, it's our job to strengthen people and to send people out to bless and strengthen his church around the city, around the state, around the world. And it's also because... um, God, for whatever reason, has done a really, a really um, exciting thing among younger, very younger adults, emerging adults. And if the local church actually doesn't create space for them to minister and affect and do things, they're not going to wait 20 years to have some kind of impact. We have to create a graduated way of including them in impact so that their passion can like push all of us slightly older people, um, and it also so that they can learn and have space for an impact in the, lo- in the local church. It, it's also because as the church, we need to listen and hear God's word from people that we didn't pick. Part of keeping in step with the Spirit is being open to he- being hearing from God, even from your enemies at any moment, where he might show you something and he might want to grow you in some way. And um, I know that our, our interns are at least up to the level of your enemies in terms of being able to share God's word with you. And, um, and then lastly, it's enormously life-giving for our church's leadership. And it can be for you if you participate in blessing and sending these folks off. And so we have an intern class of four um, pastoral and teaching interns. Two of them spoke last hour. Two of them will speak this hour. And this hour first is Grayson Lins. So let's pray for him. God, we pray that you'd bless Grayson, fill him with your spirit, empower him. We pray that he would um, embody the verse in 1 Peter chapter 4 that says, that anybody who has a gift should minister to the church in faithfulness. And if it is speaking, they should speak as though they're speaking the very words of God. And I pray that the implicit corollary to that of us as listeners is that we would listen as though he might be speaking the very words of God for us so that we would be willing to hear your word respoken through his personality. We pray that he'd speak faithfully and we would listen attentively and openly in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Nick. All right, good morning. Happy New Year. I can't believe it's that time of the year already. New Year's. How many of you guys have some sort of New Year's resolution this year? Raise your hand. Anybody? Kind of look into, you know, the classic ones, trying to eat healthier, trying to exercise, try to get into the Word a little bit more. Those are usually based in good things, right? Those are things that we kind of see as problems we're uncomfortable with, we're a little insecure about ourselves, um, that we want to change, and that's good. But there are some things that we feel insecure about, that we want to change, that we don't have control over. And I think those things can be some of the hardest things for us to deal with. But guys, I want to talk to you today about how God's wired you. There are certain things that he's wired you for that you may feel inadequate during, maybe the whole time, but that he's wired you specifically for that purpose. God will use you not in spite of your inadequacy, but through it. So if you guys want to open up to Judges 3, which will be on page 340 of your pew Bible, it's going to talk about a story that kind of emphasizes this. So to give a quick summary of the book of Judges, if you're unfamiliar, 
It's basically about the Israelites going through this cycle over and over about seven times where they start to fall into sin. God raises up a kingdom to conquer Israel. And then the Israelites cry out for help. God, help us. And God raises a judge, a judge to deliver them. And as he delivers them, they praise God and they serve God until they kind of forget that and they fall into sin again. And they just do this over and over about seven times. And we're picking up with the second judge, Ehud. And this is right after Moab has come in and dominated Israel. So in verse 15, it says, Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer. See, we're in that cycle. Crying out, deliverer comes. Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Jerah the Benjamite. The Israelites sent with him tribute, or, sent with him tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now, it's easy to skip over a seemingly insignificant detail in this passage, one that you could pass right over. But the entire rest of this passage hinges on that seemingly insignificant detail. And that detail is that Ehud was left-handed. He's left-handed. Now today, that's a rarer trait, right? Maybe 10 to 12% of people. But back then, it was much, much rarer. And I don't think that that was because people back then were just born less people with a tendency towards left-handedness. I think it was trained and probably beat out of many a people back then. And it was for a couple of reasons. They didn't just hate left-handed people. Didn't just, we'll get to that. But left-handedness was kind of impractical back then. Back then, so many people were right-handed and weapons and tools some of them had to be made differently for left-handed people versus right-handed people. We still have that today. Um, but back then, they pretty much just made right-handed weapons and tools. So left-handed people would either have to learn how to use it incorrectly with their left hand or just learn with their right hand how to do it. So it was kind of impractical. And the second thing is that over history, left-handed people have just not always been viewed in the most positive light. On the nicest side, they're kind of, they can be viewed as oddities or a little bit different in some of the much more negative sides. They're evil, they're devious, they're underhanded. So back then, the combination of that, it wasn't super great, it wasn't super fun to be left-handed. Today, we even see that a little bit. I read that 2,500 lefties a, a year die from using right-handed tools improperly. Most of those power tools, but still, 2,500 people. And I don't know if you guys have ever experienced this. I know I've heard stories of people on staff and uh, people within my family that when learning how to write, they pick it up with their left hand because that's what they wanted to, and their parents would just take it out and like, nope, you write with your right hand just even push towards that. So I think you can imagine little Ehud growing up, if his name wasn't a struggle enough, he's also trying to deal with his left-handedness. Feeling self-conscious, wanting to just be like the other kids that can use tools and can swing a sword with his right hand. That's the hero of this story. In verse 16, it picks up. 
Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword, about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. Key phrase there, strapped it to his right thigh. Now, I'll use an analogy that everybody can relate to. You know when you, you, you use a sword? Right? No? Nobody knows how? To? Okay. So you know when you see people on TV use swords? They always grab, they always take it from the opposite side of their dominant hand. For right-handies, that's your left hip. For left-handed people, that's your right hip. And the reason is, is because just mechanically, it's much easier and much faster to draw from the opposite side and pull out. Pulling from the same side is kind of awkward and can leave you looking foolish. So that's, that's what everybody would do. And back then, right-handed people were so common that pretty much everybody just wore their weapons on their left side. So much so, in fact, that when the guards would go and check people for weapons, they'd pretty much just check your left side. Because they know any normal person, any sane person, would wear their sword, would wear a knife on their left side, because that left them the greatest chance of using it if they had to. You see that even a little bit today, when police officers are kind of scanning a crowd, um, kind of looking for guns, legal or not, open carry, their eyes go straight to the right hip. That's what they check first, because that's where the majority of people, right-handed people, are going to wear their gun. So in this passage, Ehud strapped it to his right thigh, which means that he wasn't checked for that going in to see the king. In verse 17, it picks up. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. It's a very important detail. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. So as you can imagine, something like, you know, you guys, you guys go on. I'll, I'll catch up. I'm almost there. Just, just go on. on. I'll, I'll get it to you. On reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back and said, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. Now, Ehud was alone. He was unarmed as far as the king knew. So he didn't seem like that much of a threat, which would make sense why the king would want to have this kind of private meeting for this private message. So he went alone. He said, the, the king said to his attendants, Leave us! And they all left. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, anticipation building for this great message, Ehud took the sword from his, took, or reached with his left hand, the same left hand that made him feel self-conscious growing up, the same left hand that people looked at him as odd or devious or evil, that same left hand was the one that drew the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly. Now, of course, after that, the king died. Ehud was able to escape, and he was able to go back, rally the troops in Israel, and take back what the Moabites had taken from them. In most war situations, especially back then, right-handers were preferred because creating formations and manufacturing weapons, it was easier if everybody was just the same-handedness, if everybody was right-handed. But in this situation, they needed a left-handed person to do it. A right-handed person couldn't have done this mission. 
He would have either been stopped by the guards when they checked and found his sword on his left hip, or he would have been so awkward and clumsy trying to get it off of his right hip that the king could have called for help. God used Ehud, not in spite of his inadequacy, but through it. Now in this story, Ehud's kind of an unlikely deliverer. He wasn't what Israel or even King Eglon would have pictured as the deliverer of Israel. And in the same way, Jesus was an unlikely deliverer. He wasn't what people thought the Messiah would look like. He was born poor. He wasn't of a high social class. It's never said that he was you know, extraordinarily handsome like some of the other guys in the Bible. He's not strong like a warrior. In fact, by human standards, he had no reason to be the Messiah. But God forecast his ultimate deliverer in Ehud, and he, he forecasted Jesus. God used Ehud to deliver Israel from the oppression of the Moabites, and God used Jesus to deliver not just Israel, but all Jews and Gentiles, anybody who believes in him, from the oppression of sin. Now, I don't know exactly how God's going to use your inadequacy. I don't. But there's one example in my life that has been extremely prevalent for the last three years. And if you guys don't know me, I have been working with the youth ministry for three years, some, some volunteers, some interning. Um, but because of that, I've worked very closely with Derek Valensic, um, who was the youth pastor very recently, felt called to go to France, transitioned out, and is currently raising support to go to France to do missions, which is awesome. But one thing you may or may not know about him is that he has Tourette's, which I'm not dropping a bomb on anybody that knows him. He speaks of this very freely, but he has Tourette's. And as you can imagine, or as you've heard stories of him talking, that was kind of difficult. You know, it kind of led to him being bullied. It led to kind of feeling this, this wedge between him and other kids. Um, led to a lot of struggles in trying to socialize and trying to make friends. Um, he, just, he spent a lot of time wishing, dreaming that he didn't have Tourette's. And he felt extremely inadequate in a lot of different ways in a lot of different situations because of this. But because of his Tourette's, because of growing up with Tourette's, he has a much greater insight into the world of mental disorder. He sees people, he sees kids especially, that society has long forgotten or ignored or written off already as lazy or immature or weird. He sees them for who they truly are. He better understands the struggles, the, the tendencies, the mindsets of kids with mental disorders. He's able to give better advice because he's been there before. He's able to help them when they're struggling because he struggled there too. And he's able to be a role model so that they can see that they can get past this next stage in their life. They can see somebody else who survived that, who's thrived in it, and who's been used by God in it. 
God used Derek, not in spite of his inadequacy, but through it. Now, the way God uses you may not be that dramatic. I know for me, nothing like that has ever happened, but I have seen ways that God has used what I thought were inadequacies in my life and just put them to do his work. Now, anybody who knows me um, knows that when I first meet people, I can be kind of quiet, kind of shy, kind of not very intimidating or um, assertive. And in today's world of make a great first impression, be assertive, let people know who you are, I don't really fit into that naturally. It's not immediately innate in how I act and how I hold myself. And there have been times where I've wished that that wasn't true. That I I felt that I needed to get past that before I could ever be successful or before God could ever use me. But in my time with crew, in my time working in the youth ministry, I've seen God use it in such a positive way. I've had multiple volunteers, multiple students talk to me about how my demeanor, the way I carry myself, makes me much easier to talk to, makes me um, just more approachable. And I've seen in you know, hard, tough conversations that I've had to have with people that my demeanor kind of opens up dialogue, opens up conversation. There's not the intimidation or people afraid to say what they're really thinking. People say that for better or worse, they say it to me. So in that sense, God used me, not in spite of my inadequacy, but through it. Now I want to move on to to you guys. I want you to reflect for yourselves. Are there things that need to change in your life? The things that are making you feel inadequate, do they need to be changed? Or are they ways that God's wired you? Where in your life do you feel like you're trying to change your wiring? Where are you trying to be someone else in a way that God just hasn't wired you to be? Where do you find yourself holding back for fear that your inadequacy is just too much, too much for you to overcome and too much for God to overcome? Where are you holding back? I want you to identify the wirings, these things that God has wired in you in your life. And I want you to rest in that. Rest in knowing that God's wired you for the tasks that he's given to you. Not the tasks that he's given to your spouse, not the tasks that he's given to your friend, not the tasks that he's given to your coworkers. The tasks that he's given to you. We see this all throughout the Bible. We see this in Moses, where God works through his bad speech. We see this in David, where God works through David's small stature and his youth. We see this in 1 Corinthians, where Paul talks about how his speech by itself was not persuasive or wise, but that God worked through that to spread the gospel. God used Moses. He used David, he used Paul, he used Ehud, he used Derek, and he's used me. And he's used all of us, not in spite of our inadequacies, but he's used us through them.
So I want you guys to know that God will use you and not in spite of your inadequacies, but through them. Let me pray. God, thank you for, for who you are, for sending your son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, to be our ultimate deliverer. I pray that we can identify these wirings, these things that you've given us, that we, we see as inadequacies, we see these things as things that are only negative. But we pray that we can see opportunities, we can see how you've revealed how you're going to use those in our lives. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Jason. That was really good. Thank you. Anybody who listened to that openly got something from it. And the, here's the great news. Um, Becca and Grayson knew they were going to be speaking in the same service, so they've kind of coordinated around the same topic. So let's pray for Becca and turn her loose. God, we pray for Becca. Now, please speak through her. Help her to, um, to embody that verse in 1 Peter 4. To, if you've given, been given the gift to serve through teaching, speak as though you're speaking the very words of God. And help us to listen. Like we may be hearing your word for us mediated through her personality based on the text she's preaching and the, and the content that she's sharing. Please help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Nick. Well, as Nick said, my name is Becca. And I started the internship uh, at the beginning of the summer. And since the beginning of the summer, I have been having this feeling that I am so inadequate at my job. All right, so part of the internship is that we're studying theology. And any hopes that I had of appearing intelligent just went out the window when Nick handed me a book one day. And I realized that the first word in the title of the chapter one, I didn't even know how to pronounce. I was like, oh, good, we're off to a great start. All right, so I was feeling a little bit foolish. And uh, then small, simple tasks just seemed to be a little bit more difficult than they should. I was uh, typing up some small group discussion questions, and I had last year's intern, uh, Luke Zika, review them. And after he read them, he just nicely says, no. And then he proceeds to suggest five better questions in the amount of time that it took me to turn on my computer and open up the word processor. I'm like, okay, cool. So I just started noticing this sense of, I should be able to be doing better, or I just don't know what I'm doing, or I actually seem just incapable of improving. And I hit a point of feeling just overwhelmed and foolish and just wrong and afraid and uncertain. And it got to a point where I was like, mm -mm, I'm not about this. I'm out. And I broke down. At which point our compassionate pastors said of my breaking down, good, you're right where you should be. Right? So we all experience inadequacy, right? This is not news to you. When I was asking people, how do you experience inadequacy? No one was looking at me like, huh, what is this inadequacy of which you speak? No, we all experience it in some capacity. Okay, so inadequacy is defined as lack of quantity or quality required, insufficient for a purpose, or my personal favorite, unable to deal with a situation or just life, which would be me. So there, Inadequacy plays itself out in two different ways. There is actual inadequacy, in which you're just physically incapable of doing something. So, for example, I am left-handed, so according to Grayson's uh, talk, I am incapable of using power tools and need to be careful for my life. Right? 
Or inadequacy can play itself out psychologically, where you perceive that you're incapable of doing something, and it turns into an insecurity. Um, this could be like saying, I am incapable of sharing the gospel with someone, or I am inadequate to share God's truth with someone in a discipling relationship. So when I talk about inadequacy today, I am lumping these two things together. We are just dealing with the mess that is inadequacy. So if you have been married, if you are starting a new leadership role or have started a new job, or even if you're just at the point in life where you're like, I'm trying to figure out what's next, you are painfully aware of these feelings of inadequacy, of staring a situation in the face and being like, nope, I'm out, not about it. But here's the thing, God will put us or keep us in situations of inadequacy for the purpose that we see his glory. Another way to put that, God asks you to do what you can't, so you see that he can. God asks you to do what you can't, so you see that he can. And I'm not saying God is a manipulative being that wants to keep you low and is giving you all of your inadequacies. Many of our inadequacies just come from being imperfect people in a broken and separated from God world. But sometimes our inadequacies are just what God would like to use. You are, as the pastors would say, just where you need to be. So our natural human tendency is to put ourselves in situations in which we are adequate. That's why we have jobs and that we um, specialize in. That's why people prefer to do kids' ministry or some pr people prefer to do administration. Basically, we feel like or we want to feel like we've got it in the bag or that we can figure it out. But when God calls us to a task that we aren't actually capable of doing, we don't have it in the bag and we don't think we can figure it out. And that's an opportunity to rely on God's adequacy, to see that he's capable even when we're not. There's a staff member who's reading a book on parenting, and the entire first chapter is just about how you as a parent are incapable of doing your role correctly without the help of the Lord. Right? You will hate this feeling of inadequacy because it goes against our nature. But faithfully obeying what God has called you to do Trusting in his adequacy brings God glory. All right, so let me give you an example from the Bible. Um, I'm going to be talking about Gideon. It is also in the book of Judges, so apparently all the inadequate people lived during the Judges. It's great. Okay. Um, the, we'll be talking out of Judges 6 and 7, but we can get to 7 in a little bit. Okay. So as Grayson said, uh, Judges lays out this cycle of sin. Okay. And Gideon is found in the part of the cycle where the Israelites are being oppressed by a people group called the Midianites. They would annually come and just ravage everything that the Israelites had. All right. And so at this point, Gideon, our hero, like all good heroes, is hiding. And uh, the angel of the Lord appears to him, and he tells Gideon that he is a mighty warrior and that he is going to lead the Israelites into battle and defeat the Midianites. Okay. This is the part of the story where God is giving a task that you would rather he not give. This is part of our life where he's giving us something to do that we would rather he not give us to do. We would rather that he not ask us to move to that new city. We would rather that he ask us not to forgive that person that we have no desire of giving. We'd rather he not give us this situation in which we're just kind of standing there like, um, excuse me, uh, what? 
And that's exactly what Gideon says to the angel of the Lord. Um, the angel of the Lord tells him that he's going to do this great act, and Gideon's like, yeah, what? He's like, um, I don't know if you've noticed, angel of the Lord, but this God that brought us out of Egypt, uh, he seems to have abandoned us as the Midianites are just kind of impoverishing us for the past seven years. So I'm not really sure that God is going to be coming through. Right? And so the angel of the Lord says, nonetheless, go in the strength you have. And Gideon uses this opportunity to explain to the Lord, I ain't got no strength. He's like, I... Um, can't lead the Mid- or I can't lead Israel against the Midianites. I am from the weakest clan. I am the smallest member of my family. There is no strength of which to speak. Mm-mm. And we do this so often. We make lists explaining to God all the reasons that we can't do what he's called us to do. God, I don't have the time. God, I don't have the resources. God, I have never done this before. God, there is clearly somebody else better for the job, I'm sure. And just like Gideon, when he's saying, I can't do this, we make that similar assumption where if God calls me to a task, then it is all up to me to see it through. And we completely forget the other being in this equation, the one that originated the task and his adequacy. So God responds. He says, am I not sending you and I will be with you? Okay, he almost dismisses what Gideon says and he brings the attention back to himself. God is like, me. Am I not sending you and I will be with you? God asks you to do what you can't so you see that he can. So as the story goes on, the Holy Spirit comes over Gideon and he raises up an army of 32,000 men. And this is where we're going to pick it up in our story. Um, This is found in chapter seven, starting in verse two. All right. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. So Gideon assembles an army, which is a miracle within itself. And then God tells him, he's got too many men. What? That's like, that that just goes against the rules of being a general 101. The more men you have, the better. It's like in that um, scene in the Chronicles of Narnia where the Narnians are about to face off with the white witch and the centaur looks over to King Peter and says, numbers do not win a battle. And King Peter's like, no, but I bet they help, right? Because they do. Like, if you have men, you kind of want to keep them. And God was just like, nope. You have too many. Why does he say that? Why? Well, what does the text say? Or Israel will boast against me. My own strength has saved me. And this is like the meat of the whole passage. God's like, it's about me. I'm the one who called you. I'm the one who created the task. I'm the one that's making you adequate. I'm the one that's going to deliver you. And I'm the one that's going to be glorified. God's plan is his glory. He says to Gideon, if you and your friends win this battle as it is right now with the numbers you have, you guys will come out in victory and say, that was us. Man, we did good. God's like, no, it's me. So we're decreasing the size of your army. All right, going to verse three. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. Okay, so God just says, if anyone's scared, right, which makes sense in this scenario. If I was going to war, I'd probably be a little scared. He's like, if if you're scared, 
you can go. And so Gideon loses over two-thirds of his army. By this point, I imagine Gideon's looking at God like, you know, I'm, I'm scared. Can, can I go? Is that me too? No? Okay, cool, cool. Right? But then this is what happens next in verse 4. But the Lord said to Gideon, there we go, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you there. If I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water, skipping to verse 6. 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs, all the rest down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the 300. So I can only imagine Gideon by this point, right? He's lost two-thirds of his army, and then God tells him, it's still too many men, and he's going to decrease the size again, and he's probably just like, no, God, we're not going to do this. And God's like, oh, you bet we are. Here we go. Here we go, right? And so he decreases the army again to 300 men. Just for perspective, that is just shy of 1% of what Gideon started with. And I don't know if you're noticing this, but as Gideon continues to obey and gets closer to that point of no return, his job is not necessarily getting any easier. He's not looking more adequate, but he is still stepping out in faith and following the Lord. God asks you to do what you can't, so you see that he can. So I'll give you one guess as to how the story ends. With 300 men, and a mighty warrior that started out his story in hiding. God defeats the Midianites. It's really cool. So cool, 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 Becca, that was a great story. Thanks for sharing. Um, But see, you just said that Gideon's job didn't get easier, it actually got harder, and he didn't seem more adequate, and I'm still sitting here in my inadequacy, so, so what am I supposed to do with that? Three things. All right, the first. Talk with God about your inadequacy. And when I say talk with God, that implies a dialogue. That means that you bring your inadequacies to God and you tell him. But that also means that you listen to what God says about your inadequacies. There's a dual reality here. There's a reality that you just may actually be inadequate and incapable of handling whatever situation is at hand. And it's okay to tell God that. Bring him your lists, bring him your worries and your inadequacies. But there is the equal reality of God's response. He says, have I not called you? Am I not sending you? God has given you the task nonetheless. He's given you the task to spiritually lead your family well. He's given you the task to not cheat, to get ahead and work. He's given you the task to trust him with your uncertain future. Am I not sending you? Then his second response, I will be with you, right? He says those exact sentences to Gideon when he was not adequate, physically or psychologically. He said those same sentences to Moses when he sent him back to Egypt. He said those same sentences to the disciples and to you and me when he gave the Great Commission. Am I not sending you and I will be with you? Number two, consider the reality of God's faithfulness. When I say consider, I don't mean like, well, you know, just maybe, potentially, think about, kind of, consider it, possibly. No, what I say consider, I mean study, acknowledge, turn over in one's mind God's faithfulness to you. Okay, we 
when we can see God's faithfulness in our past, it bolsters us for obedient faith in the future. Um, Gideon wasn't seeing how God had been faithful to him when he was complaining to the angel of the Lord, saying, um, yeah, God has abandoned us. But he was kind of ignoring the events that happened in the five previous chapters of Judges where God was continually being faithful to deliver Israel time and time again from its oppressors. But as Gideon starts to see God's faithfulness in fulfilling miracles and making him successful and just even encouraging Gideon, he's able to take obedient steps of faith even though he really is inadequate for the job. Right, and if I was, um, or while I was worrying about my inadequacy for my internship, I kind of failed to see that God was faithful to get me through graduation to the, so I could even do the internship, or that he provided me with a host family so I'd have a place to live, or that he brought in all of my support raising funds so that I could have a means of living. If God was faithful to handle those little tasks, would he not be faithful to then take me into the next step that he's calling me to do? So then third, Trust God's adequacy, not your arsenal. So Gideon started building an army for battle, which after God told him he was going to war, that makes sense. It was a logical step. There was nothing wrong with what Gideon did. However, that's not what God was going to use to make them adequate. Israel's adequacy for victory should not be found in their earthly ability, but trusting in God's adequacy. Right, when God calls you to do something, I'm not saying be lazy, don't worry about it, don't prepare. Preparation is good, it makes sense, and it can actually give the Holy Spirit something to work with. But we need to trust that God is the one making us adequate, not our training, not our planning, not our worrying. High Point Church, you will do great things, you can be adequate, but you will not be adequate of yourselves. You will be adequate because of God and him working through you, okay? And when we step into a task in which we are incapable, but God is the one that's adequate, then God gets to demonstrate his might, and he gets glory, okay? God asks you to do what you can't, so we see that he can. And the last thing, God has demonstrated his might in the most ultimate inadequacy that we can possibly imagine. We are utterly incapable, completely inadequate to save ourselves. We cannot physically, psychologically, spiritually be adequate to justify ourselves before a holy God, a God that sees every horrible moment and terrible thing that we do, a God that sees every good thing we do but with crappy motivations, or a God that sees even the good motivations that we have but compared to his holiness are still filthy rags. Because God is holy and we are not, we are living in this inadequacy. We live in this separate from God world. But Jesus did a mighty work by dying on the cross, accepting the punishment that we earned. And he became adequacy for us by making that sacrifice. And then he took it a step further. Not only did he become adequacy for us, he made us adequate before God. God claims us as co-heirs with Christ, sons and daughters no longer condemned, and he sees us with Christ's righteousness. And seeing this adequacy takes a step of faithful obedience that God called Gideon to take, that God is calling us to take, a step of faithful obedience to trust Jesus as our Savior, who makes us completely adequate, and God will be glorified. And church, if God was able 
to fill the gap of our inadequacy for the biggest and most eternal inadequacy. Can we not trust him to do the same for our, all our smaller inadequacies as well? God asks you to do what you can't so you see that he can. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for making us adequate by your Son. Thank you for being with us in the moments when we have absolutely nothing to offer and when we don't have a hope to, but that you still make us capable, make us adequate. And I pray, God, that we would recognize that and give you all the glory. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 Great job, Becca. You guys, you guys must be really proud of her. She's turning into quite a young woman. Also, as a left-handed person, um, <clears throat> I really appreciate the labor you guys did in, and in vindicating our heritage in the Bible. Um, <clears throat> this, this last song that we're going to do is actually my favorite hymn in the world. Um, and for some of you, if you haven't sung it a bunch, the, the poetry is kind of thick. And so if for the first couple times you come in contact with this song, you have to just like read through the poetry and realize what it's saying artistically, that's fine. But if you do, you're going to see that there is so much of the promise and truth of God bound up in it that you'll want to memorize it. So why don't we stand, and if you know it, sing together. If you're not familiar with it, um, it's, a, it's your third sermon this morning. It's, it's that beautiful. And um, take it with you um, as a poetic expression of what we've, we've thought about in this service together.